I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. This will certainly have an adult theme and might well contain strong scenes of sex or violence, which could be quite graphic. It may also contain some very explicit language, which will frequently mean sexual swear words. What do you like, Mr. Um... <laughs> Chart music. <laughs> Chart music. It's Thursday evening. It's December the 28th, 1972. It's... I'm not sure, because we didn't have clocks in 1972. We may do with the sun. But this episode of Top of the Pops is astonishing. Hey, up you pop-crazed youngsters. This is Al Needham, introducing you to the final part of Chart Music 63. Let's not fanny about a minute longer. Let us get stuck into this episode. Agro! Peace of Nielsen to the power of the Osmonds. There's a message spoken in the air. Come from crazy horses riding everywhere. After a quick flash of some abstract art for some reason, we crossfade out of Nielsen into the next single, which means we don't get thwacked across the face by the mental synthy intro. So, yeah, cheers for that, Harry, you cunt. Edmunds. <laughs> Putting on that voice again tells us we're going from the peace of Nielsen to the power of the Osmonds with crazy horses. Yeah, the peace of Nielsen. It shows how closely Noel was listening to that suicide ballad. Yeah. Ah, peaceful. (laughs) (laughs) Must have been distracted by Pan's people because he enjoyed that. If he had three hands, he would have applauded. (laughs) We covered Ken, 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 Ken and Donnie in chart music number three. And this, taken from their fourth LP of the same name, is the UK follow-up to Down by the Lazy River, which got to number 40 for two weeks in April. It only got to number 14 in America in October, but on the back of the success of Donnie's solo career, it entered the chart in November at number 27, then soared 20 places to number 7 and went all the way to number 2. And here's another chance to see their studio performance, which was recorded when they were over here on their first UK tour. And that tour, chaps, fucking hell. A landmark event of the 70s, I believe. (laughs) I mean, not only did they arrive at Heathrow on the same day as the Jackson 5, who were doing the Royal Variety Show, but both bands stayed in the same fucking hotel. (laughs) Which is insane, Terrible planning. Yeah. It must have been fucking sheer hysteria around that mm. place. Yeah. Also, 
in that hotel on the same night in a bad fucking scheduling move. The four tops who were doing their UK tour, the poor bastards, man. Yeah. I could just see Levi Stubbs in a thick toweling dressing gown standing at the window yeah. holding a West Clock's timepiece and shouting, for fuck's sake, keep the fucking noise down. <laughs> Yeah, one room with ensuite bathroom of gloom. <laughs> and of course, one of the great things about that uh, arrival at Heathrow was uh, Chinny Chap were watching it on the TV news. And one of them said, oh my God, it's a teenage rampage. Uh... And the other one said, hmm, good, good title for a song. That. <laughs> was that in the Chinny Chap biopic or did that really? Yes. <laughs> Article in the Daily Mirror a day later. Weenie Rampage stops a pop visit. Fear of a weenie bopper riot has forced a top store to cancel an appearance by American pop stars, the Osmond Brothers. The group were due to spend an hour today signing records and meeting fans at the Swan and Edgar store in London's West End. But the visit was called off after fans, many of them girls aged 11 or 12, besieged the hotel where they're staying. Extra police were called in when weenie boppers, some armed with knives, (laughs) and one... With a sledgehammer, Whoa. stormed the Churchill Hotel on Portman Square. Yesterday, Swan and Edgar decided not to risk the trouble from fans. A spokesman for the store said, We were advised by the police to cancel the appearance. Even today, we had almost 200 Osman fans in the store. Six were hysterical and had to be calmed down. Yeah. And, the, and the police at the hotel, they eventually arrested eight girls, all of whom were under 13, after a plate glass window at the hotel was pushed through. So, yeah. Blimey. Very busy day at that hotel. Yeah, I'm wondering about that early 70s definition of calmed down as well. Mm. The thing is, that kind of hysteria, if it was just about, say, puppy love, mm. you could kind of think, oh, well, that's a bit ridiculous. But if it's about crazy horses, it's totally understandable. Definitely. This is a fucking tune, isn't it? Let's put it right out here. This is fucking amazing, this record. I've always thought this record's amazing. And, and I think it's basically because it's so fucking metal. That's why. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Don't take my word for it. Ask Ozzy Osbourne. Yes. You know, when Donnie was on um, Dancing with the Stars and Kelly Osbourne was in the finals with him, Ozzy comes right up to Donnie and says, I just want you to know that Crazy Horses is one of my favourite rock and roll songs of all time. At that pub where uh, uh, Gary Glitter was played, there was a barmaid there who was young and mm. Crazy Horses came on. And she says, oh, I know who's done this. It's uh, little Ozzy Osmond, isn't it? <laughs> In a way, I'd it is, though, isn't it? little Ozzy Osmond. Yeah. Yeah, no, yeah, it really is. <laughs> and don't just take Ozzy's word for it. You know, what about Led Zeppelin? You mm. know, Led Zeppelin invite the Osmonds on stage to sing Stairway to Heaven at Earl's Court because they yeah. love Crazy Horses so much and they invite him backstage and John Bonham even brings his son Jason to an Osmonds concert and brings him backstage. Wow. Believe Simon Le Bon, who, who, who also asked the Osmonds to tour with Duran later because they, Crazy Horses is one of his favourite records. Or beyond yeah. all that, ask Saddam Hussein. Because yes. when the military yes. caught Saddam Hussein, they discovered he had a complete collection of Osman's records, yes. including Crazy Horses. Who could resist this record? 
I can imagine Saddam doing the fucking mud rocker in front of that massive mural he had at his swimming pool of uh, the wings of love. Yeah, listening to crazy horses eating a bounty and swigging a glass of Johnny Walker black. <laughs> well, you know what else Saddam Hussein was into, but bringing it back to Christmas and all? Quality Street. Oh, really? Yeah. When George Galloway interviewed him about 20 years ago, huh. first thing Saddam did was break out a big tin of Quality Street and shake it at him and say, oh, pick ever one you want, mate. That's nice, isn't it? Even the green ones, yeah. I'd have thought it'd have been sweet enough already. All the fun of this year, <laughs> as they say in Iraq. <laughs> I'm just dead proud as well that this is the one that really starts flying up the British yes. chart. I'm not saying it's a very rocky chart that we're looking at or a rocky year, but we, we're into a bit of that. Mm. It's more successful in the UK than it is in America, this tune. It's not glam, of course, mm. but, you know, there's a very guitar sort of heavy vibe to an awful lot of the pop songs going on in 72. Yeah. And this is just a fucking sensational smoking hot record. Yes. And what an introduction. Fuck it. One of the best introductions to a single ever. Yeah. Which, if you did it now, it would get no radio play because mm. people would say, "No, that's so that introduction is too too aggressive and, mm. and startling." It's the fucking Osmonds. <laughs> yeah. uh, it's so bizarre that this record exists. Yes, mm. I mean you can see pretty much how it might have happened, right? Like our fundamentally quite crap act with mostly crap songs could think, "All right, let's do a stomper with a gimmick." Oh and go all out on the production and through a combination of, of, of basic competence, the high standards of, of studio recording at the time, mm. and a, yeah. a huge bestowal of triers luck, um, come out with something like this. Because yeah. this is largely an Osmond creation. I mean, it's written and yeah. co-produced by members of the group, already forgotten which ones, because they're like the indistinguishable bridges of Amsterdam. Jay and um, Merrill. <laughs> okay, right. And it's also, sorry, co-produced by Michael Lloyd from the West Coast Pop Art Experimental that's Band. Right. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But the the real thrill of this is that it should never have happened. No. You know what I mean? It's like they really did blow a dart out of their arse and hit the bullseye. Mm. And I love that because it's like an expensive version of those 60s garage records or something, or, mm, or yeah, those yeah. one-off punk singles like I Got Rabies by Johnny and the Lubes, which is a, <laughs> an amazing record, but it's the, the yeah, only yeah. thing they ever did that you'll ever care about. You mm. know what I mean? And there's a lovely mm. purity to that. But the difference is I Got Rabies by Johnny and the Lubes is also the only thing Johnny and the Lubes ever did you'll ever hear about. Like, it's mm. not set against this weird background of, you know, lube mania. Whereas the the contrast between the volcanic hysteria of this record and the overall cultural and musical bromide of the Osmonds, it just, it's an extra thrill. It gives mm. it that little extra yeah. something. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I've said it before, but I'll say it again. What a fucking head fuck this must have been for a 15-year-old head hearing this amazing sound coming out of his little sister's bedroom yeah. and thinking, oh, yeah, God, completely. is this Hawkwind or Sabbath or something? It's like, oh, no, it's that band you hate. And if that little sister had the album as well, mm. he's going to hear Hold a Tight, which is their version of Immigrant Song, really. It's a fucking amazing tune. The Osmonds on the quiet were skill. They really were. Yeah. It's like hearing Welcome to the Terror Dome and finding out it's been made by Bross. <laughs> 
must have been gutting for that lad. And, but the thing is, as well, this performance is fucking awesome. Yes. I think it's really, really yeah. good. It's great on this song anyway yeah. that they gave the lead vocal to Jay um, because I always love a singing drummer mm. and his more sort of low voice, guttural voice totally suits the sound. Yeah. And in this performance, the fact he's doing his vocal live means that he gets kind of breathless and sweaty and it really, really amps up the feel. Mm. And of course, there's that lovely daft waddle thing they yeah, do with their the legs. Chicken dance. <laughs> that's the one. That it makes you feel strangely like, you. yes, you're witnessing a, a rock show, but also, I don't know, it's part rodeo and part monster truck rally. Yes. Well, it's just, yeah. it's just strange. But what a bolt from the blue it is, yeah. this record. As you can imagine, this was an absolute banger at the Scott um, Thursday Dinner Time disco. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. When I saw the Osmonds perform it for the first time, I was shocked that they weren't Cherokees. I thought they were Native Americans who were in a rock band. Right, right. Because it sounds like an electronic powwow. You know, the drums are proper, you know, tribal. Yeah, yeah. The opening bit isn't a it's just an organ, but they rigged it up in the studio and surrounded it with loads of amps. And um, it was so loud that they had to play the organ from inside the gallery of the studio. You couldn't be in the fucking same room as that when they played it. It was too loud and ear-splitting. <laughs> wow. Proper spinal tap. And really hats off to them, because, of course, you know, up until this point, they'd been a boy band, and all of their songs were chosen for them by the record company. Yeah. They earned this kind of slight bit of autonomy with that success, but good on them for using that success to just basically freak the fuck out and play yeah. this immensely heavy song. Yeah. Although not for the last time in this episode, I'm not quite 100% sure what we're actually listening to here. I think, I mean, it's live vocals, Mm. I think, over a bad mix of the backing track, Mm. which is a bit of a shame. It's hard to tell for sure, but whatever, it's a bad move because the magic of this record is precariously balanced. You know, this is not like the Stones shambling on stage and making a mess and it still sort of sounds great and is exciting like crazy horses is a mini miracle and they can't really afford to play loose with it so Mm. it survives here but what we actually hear hasn't got the oomph for the record like that whinnying organ is absurdly low in the mix yeah yeah no apparent reason which the whole fucking point of the record exactly The, (laughs) the point of the record is the way it it rears up out of the mix at you with its nostrils flaring, you know what I mean? <laughs> Bearing its ugly yellow teeth in your face and giving you colic and Potomac fever, you know, <laughs> stealing your apple right out of your hand. Um, and as soon as you mix that down, you've, you've already taken 50% away from this record. So it's a bit of a shame. You've Better off listening to the record than watching this. But no, I, while it's here, it's more than welcome. Oh, yeah, because yeah, the undertow is yeah. fucking immense and the undertow cannot be denied. It's just this amazing smoking hot beat. You know, much like much of this episode, actually, and I'm sure it's not just my ears going wrong, fuck me, it's a bassy episode. There's mm. a, it's got a good low end to it, a lot of these songs, and, and that really comes across there. Donnie pushed to the back. Yeah. It's, it's a definite power move, isn't it, by Jay and Merrill? Mm to let the young one know his place. But then again, he gets to fuck about with the organ and do yeah. that sliding thing, which is amazing. <laughs> I used to do that on a table. <laughs> they all look so much happier as well. The yes. I've seen them, they all look like they're enjoying it. I mean, they're not all great at rocking out, but they all look mm. so much more comfortable. And even though Donnie, yeah, has been shoved to the side a little bit, he looks genuinely properly happy 
Like, yes. like he's enjoying this music. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, he's on a good record for <laughs> probably the first time. Yeah. I mean, Neil, do, from what you're saying, do you like those weird later Osman records? Oh, no, no. For me, the cutoff point is the Crazy Horses album. And, and oh, okay. I do, yeah. You're right, Taylor. The next one. What's the concept album called from 73? The Plan. The Plan, the plan. The plan yeah. is an amazing record. But after that, yeah, it all falls apart. But See, I, I think The Plan is more amazing in theory than in practice. <laughs> That's my problem. No, yeah, with The Plan, I know you're right. I am probably... The thing is with The Plan and with Crazy Horses, the album, at times you kind of... Am I really digging this or am I just amazed that it's the Osmonds? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And and if this was coming from a more conventional rock band, would I just think, oh, this is mediocre? But I will always stand up for Crazy Horses and Hold Her Tight. Hold Her Tight is a fucking amazing Osmond mm-hmm. song. The plan has definite moments of intrigue. I cannot find its avowed kind of concept about Mormonism <laughs> much in it. It just seems like a set of songs. But as a sort of bit of ear candy, it, what it reminds me of is Turtles Battle of the Bands a little bit. It's got a similar sound mm-hmm. um, to that record. So I do enjoy that one. I do enjoy Crazy Horses. But Crazy Horses, the album, fuck me. Don't bother with anything else apart from the first track on each side. First track on side one, I think, is Crazy Horses. First track on side two, Hold a Tight. That's all you need. If they'd have released that as a double A, that would go down as one of the greatest singles of the 70s. I don't know that song. Oh, Hold a Tight is amazing. As far as I'm aware, with the Osmonds, this song is their primary achievement. Their third Mm. greatest achievement is One Bad Apple which is yeah. an actual Jackson 5 cast-off yeah. and still better than all but one of the Osmonds records that I've ever heard. Mm. And their second mm. greatest achievement is partially inspiring The Osmonds by Denim, which is, you know, the <laughs> loveliest song about mm. the British 70s with, you know, precisely the right balance of humour and seriousness of a sort and which should probably be in the collection of every chart music listener and i don't think there is a fourth greatest achievement unless this song you're talking about is is as great as you say because i'll hold a tight is it's funny you mentioned denim though taylor i was thinking of denim you know when we would talk about chicory tip that sound that chicory tip doing that is a real denim thing yeah yeah i was thinking because i was i was thinking about i I met lawrence at a denim once or twice when he used to hang around and I was talking to him once, and he was talking about the sound of the Denim album. And he said, uh, yeah, I, I realised that all my life I wondered why my records didn't sound like my favourite records that I'd liked as a kid. And I realised it's because they didn't put any reverb on these records. They were all really dry. So that's how he did the Denim album. And right. I said, Lawrence, all those felt records, like the <laughs> defining characteristic of those records is they're all absolutely swamped in reverb. And he goes, mm, mm. yeah quite ironic really <laughs> <laughs> yeah but this song man fucking hell the one thing that's missing from this performance that would ramp it up even more is if little jimmy was there with his top off dancing like stacia <laughs> <laughs> that would have just put the fucking tin lid on everything <laughs> But yeah, we spoke earlier and we raised the question, was it just Donna that got the girls screaming or was there anything in the other Osmonds? And I contend there was. Well, they all looked like him. <laughs> yeah. I mean, basically, if you fancy Donny, you're probably going to fancy the other Osmonds. Mm. But the run of shows in 1974, looking back on it as I did for this episode, I mean, mm. fucking hell. 
They could do anything and they'd get screamed at. They do their barbershop routine from the Andy Williams show. Screams. They have a bit of a country hoedown. Screams. They talk about their wives. Screams. They could have done anything, man, and they mm. would have just been screamed at. Yeah, because they've got that mass appeal. They've got that appeal that actually pushes, I think, beyond sexuality or anything else. Mm. The hysteria just gets fixated on the band. Yeah. And it, it's kind of like, that. I don't think all the people scream at and thinking what they want to do to the Osmonds or no. with the Osmonds necessarily. They just become the focus. Yeah. And, and you know, because they're perfect when your world isn't, um, yeah. it's going to be, it's going to have that effect. And it is down to them being American. You know, these girls are reacting to the Osmonds in the same way that their aunties reacted to the GIs during the war. You know, they just came from a better place. Mm. They were better dressed uh, than the local lads. And the Mormonism, I think, does send the message that, you know, these aren't, they're not going to try and fill you up. They're going to be true. They're going to be gentlemen, do you know? Yeah. 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 And they might already be married, but they could still marry you as well. Yeah, as I said in a previous chart music, they should have held a a mass Mormon wedding ceremony (laughs) on the last gig of their tour. (laughs) They're offering this little house on the prairie lifestyle for, you know, British kids living in this scabby arse of a country. So Crazy Horse has spent three weeks at number two, held off its rightful place at the top by the next single we're going to hear. The follow-up, Going Home, got to number four in August of 1973, but they eventually got to number one a year later with Love Me For A Reason. Crazy Horses would make two appearances in the UK charts in the 90s when a remix by Utah Saints got to number 50 in September of 1995 and its use in a Virgin Atlantic advert got the original to number 34 in June of 1999. Sound. That's from the Osmonds Crazy Horses. Before we have a, another great sound, I want to introduce you to somebody you know so well, Rolf Harris. Yeah. Uh, hello, Rolf. Get a nice Christmas. So, I don't know how to sort of put this, but you know, it's, it's lovely to have you here. But what are you doing here? That's so, lovely, isn't it? You know. What happened? Johnny Stewart rang yeah. up, and said, "I'm playing your favourite record," and I said, "Marvellous! You've got to get some new pictures though for that." And mm-hmm. he said, "Well, why don't you come and draw them?" So that, that's the right. plot. That's what I'm doing. I got myself into it. And it just so happens you've got the everything set yeah, up I, over there. I've got to relate it to myself, if that's right. all right with you. Lovely. Good. OK, then. And here's the record from Chuck Berry, My Ding-a-Ling. When I was a wee little boy, my grandmother bought me a cute little toy. Silver bells hanging on a string. She told me it was my ding-a-ling-a-ling. Tony! All Alone in His Festive Bubble tells us that that was a great sound and we're going to hear another great sound in a bit. But before that, he wants to introduce us to someone we know so well. Rolf fucking Harris. What the fuck are you doing here, says Tone in so many words. (laughs) Rolf tells us that Johnny Stewart rang him up and said they were playing his favourite song, with Rolf countering that they'd need some new pictures to go with it and Stewart offering him the job. It so happens you've got the 
everything set up over there, says Tonet as expertly as usual. <laughs> Before Rolf cuts him off and Tony introduces My Ding-A-Ling by Chuck Berry. My God, things have taken a strange turn. Yeah, well, Tony is ever doing his job with the calm assurance of a man who's just leant forward to flush a toilet and his glasses have slipped off and fallen in. <laughs> uh, Rolf just has that expressionless psychopath effect you know the <laughs> fake smile and the, it's been yeah. so long since the wiggling big toe of rolf's career disappeared mm. under the water mm. it's easy to forget <laughs> just how little he actually brought to the table mm. <laughs> apart from a fucking stylophone it's like it, it, he, he's just he's worthless he has nothing to offer but he's friendly which is all you want as a kid mm. Um, but I remember being impressed by his artwork as a child, or at least yeah. his speed in creating it. But fuck me, he's no Tony Hart. Born in St. Louis in 1926, Chuck Berry is Chuck fucking Berry. Although he was one of the most influential artists of the rock and roll era on the youth of Britain, his UK chart career was patchy at best, scoring only two top ten singles in the 60s with Let It Rock and No Particular Place to Go. However, he re-signed to Chess Records in 1970 and underwent a renaissance on the back of the rock and roll revival boom and spent a lot of time in the UK in 1972 playing a 60-date tour, playing the set of the day at the Rock and Roll Festival at Wembley Stadium in August, and recording the LP The London Chuck Berry Sessions for Chess. Side two of that LP was to be given over to a live recording, which turned out to be a portion of his set at the Lanchester Arts Festival at the Locarno in Coventry on February the 3rd of this year, sandwiched between Slade and Pink Floyd. And as an encore... And while he was running over time as usual and thousands of heads were outside banging on the doors to see Pink Floyd, he gave an 11-minute encore of this single, a cover of the song based on the folk song Little Brown Jug, which was first recorded by Dave Bartholomew in 1952, which was covered by the Bees as Tingling in 1954 and covered as My Tambourine by Barry himself in 1968. When the LP came out in June, a boned-down version of this was put out as the league cut, and with next to no airplay, eventually snuck into the chart at number 38 in the last week of October, becoming his first hit in the UK since Promised Land got to number 26 for two weeks in February of 1965. When it jumped up 15 places the following week, the BBC put it on top of the pops. Luckily, they already had footage to go, as they filmed an appearance on the BBC Two show Sounds on Saturday at the BBC Television Theatre in the spring and put it out in July, cutting his performance of this song from transmission. When the clip was aired, My Ding-A-Ling soared 17 places to number 6, then jumped 4 places to number 2, was repeated on top of the pops again, and in the last week of November, it scared off clear by Gilbert O'Sullivan to get to number 1. But by this time, a certain 62-year-old woman from Nuneaton had noticed, <laughs> and she opened up a new front in her war with the BBC article in the Daily Mirror from November the 28th. 
Ding dong ding a ling. Mrs. Whitehouse in Ra with BBC over that top of the pop song. A campaign to have the number one pop hit My Ding a Ling banned from BBC TV and radio shows has been started by Mrs. Mary Whitehouse. She claims that it is meant to encourage masturbation. <laughs> She has written to Sir John Eden, Minister of Telecommunications, asking him to stop the Chuck Berry record being broadcast. In her letter, she quotes from the song, I like to play with my ding-a-ling, and most of all, with your ding-a-ling. <laughs> Not even there, Doc. And she says there is no doubt that such lines are intended to encourage mutual masturbation. <laughs> Mrs. Whitehouse, Secretary of the National Viewers and Listeners Association, spoke yesterday of a film screened on last week's Top of the Pops of US rock star Berry singing the controversial song. She said, Some young people in the studio were obviously embarrassed and clearly didn't want to join in the singing. (laughs) Technicians were told to spotlight them, however, and thus they were forced to participate. This was a technique more in keeping with fascism in a totalitarian state (laughs) than in Britain. It is a scandal that the BBC should allow itself to be used as a vehicle for mass child (laughs) molestation in this way. Fucking hell. Who can forget that chilling scene in Triumph of the Will when Hitler stands at a podium and screams, Mein ding a lingen Mein Ding-a-Lingen! You will play with Mein Ding-a-Lingen! The following week, with the world watching on in anticipation, Top of the Pops dared to play the single again. And once more, the Daily Mirror was there to report... Babies playing with bells helped to cool down the ding-dong row over that song last night. (laughs) The baby pictures were screened on the Top of the Pops TV show while Chuck Berry's song My Ding-A-Ling was played. The show's producers, banned from using a clip of the star, rang the changers with another idea. The pans people dancing girls tinkled bells attached to their wrists while they gyrated in brief costumes. Wisely electing not to play the song on baby Jesus' birthday to avoid the unsavoury sight of the nation's children violently masturbating over Action Man's face. (laughs) But unable to leave one of the biggest selling singles of the year out completely, the BBC appeared to have struck upon a compromise with a very special guest. I mean, before we get stuck into Rolf, what a fucking palaver over this song, man. Yeah, it's so typical that of all the reasons you could find to censure chuck berry mary's yeah. main problem is that he <laughs> said dingaling um <laughs> she was a kidderminster person for a while mary whitehouse uh right. very you must home. be proud yeah she wasn't a friend of mine or anything um <laughs> she, well actually she lived in a place called far forest um which sounds quite magical like she yes. lived in a mm. in the turret of a raven black castle with Bats flying out of the cross-shaped windows, you know. But it's actually a quite genteel village just outside Kidderminster, where she lived at this time, in fact, 1972. Right. uh, Just safely nestled in the 
triangular homeland of the old school British reactionary far right. You know, Enoch Powell, Peter Griffiths, yeah, yeah. Mary Whitehouse, Wolverhampton, Smethwick, Kidderminster, which is not mm-hmm. so much where I came from as where I left. Um, mm. And I can't really mm. afford London these days. And whenever I moan about that, Someone always says, would you ever move back up to uh, where you came from? And I say, (laughs) I'd rather be flatmates with Ronnie Pickering. (laughs) (laughs) She could have adopted you, Taylor. Fucking hell. (laughs) Imagine. (laughs) Yeah, well, I mean, of course, all of what White House did, did the job for Chuck because it kept the record prominent. Definitely, yeah. When Sir Charles Curran, DG of the BBC, writes back to White House, he does wonder, and I quote, whether the record would have remained in a high position in the charts for such a long time without the publicity attendant upon the publication of your comments, which is a really good point. Mm. Uh, You know, far from cleaning up society, as she intended to do, she was kind of instrumental in bringing about these nightmare scenarios for herself. Yeah, and she'd left it a bit too late, hadn't she, really, when the song's already at number yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, completely. Clearly she wasn't listening to Tom Brown on Sunday afternoon with a <laughs> notebook in hand. But, you know, also I didn't really get what the problem is with mutual masturbation. No. It seems one of the most anodyne sexual activities, really. It's not going to cause any problems as such. I don't know if you want it on top of the pops on a Thursday night <laughs> when you're having a late tea. Oh, Look, Mary Whitehouse resigned as a teacher to devote her energies to the Women of Britain Clean Up TV campaign. That's inspirational to me. I would love to resign as a teacher, but, um, uh, uh, you know, not, not to do anything like this. And in a sense, you know, of course, she's just doing an old game. It goes all the way back to Plato, the idea that artistic expression can conflict with a well-ordered society. But Jesus Christ, choose your targets. Mm. Um, this record, I mean, why is it, by the way, with this episode that uh, whenever Coventry gets involved, something strange starts fucking happening? Yes. It, it's really odd. But I mean, you know, 72, I mean, granted it didn't get played on the radio, but we've had Judge Dredd, Big Six in the charts. Yeah, he you was know. fuming. Well, quite. Look. Why hasn't Mary Whitehouse said anything about him? It's just not right. He must be sat at him now. <laughs> just watching this going fucking hell that could be me Rolf could be doing content <laughs> of me but that's a filthy record and that, that was in the charts yes so. Yeah. so why are Top of the Pops doing this then chaps well I mean this is not the most insightful observation um, I think you'll agree but by illustrating it so uh, Rolf mm. is of course murdering the joke such as it is mm. right? I mean this yes. is Probably the single worst song in the world for a quick sketch artist to illustrate. Um, I mean, you know, excuse the obviousness of what I'm about to say, and uh, a joke stops being funny when you explain it. Even the rip snorting, uh, show stopping laugharama of my dingaling. But the way this thing works (laughs) is he says A, which is something very innocent. But because of how it's worded, you can't help but picture B, which is rude. Mm. Um, so accompanying that song with a series of illustrations of A, gumming up your mind's eye and blocking the path of a joke is effectively comic sabotage. Yeah. Mm. And slightly fascinating in its illustration of the blockheaded philistinism of people in positions of influence in the media even during its golden age. Mm. And what interests me is, is Rolf 
so utterly stupid that he can't see that? Or is he just completely fine with any degree of professional humiliation so long as it involves free entry into a room full of prey? Um, you know, is mm. he just sniffing around the watering hole for a baby gazelle with a limp? You know, I don't know. You just say, fuck off back to animal hospital. Go and cuddle a hedgehog <laughs> in a towel. Or like wash down an elephant with a broom, you know. Because he loves animals, right? Mm. He's got the scars yeah. to prove it. He's not going <laughs> to sue over that, is he? He's not, he's say, oh, no, I think that, that had a negative effect on my reputation. Yeah, right, mate. <laughs> I mean, he's no stranger to Top of the Pops, of course. He was a recording artist of sorts throughout the 60s, uh, linked up with George Martin in 1962. It was the best stuff he ever did, those records. It's not that long ago that he was the Christmas number one in 1969 with two little boys. Mm. At number one for six weeks and the last number one of the 60s. That's how the 60s bowed out. <laughs> and by this point, he's, he's still a BBC regular. He's just finished the mm. final series of the Saturday evening variety thing, the Rolf Harris show, and has nipped into the studio while he's in the building recording his week-long run as a storyteller on Play School. So, yeah, that's why he's there. And also, apart from explaining the joke I contend he's also in here to cover up the bits in the film where the SS put their jack boots on people's throats for not being indoctrinated into masturbation she does have a real problem with it later on in the decade mm. I think she writes to the Bishop of Suffolk in 79 saying will you state publicly and quite specifically whether you are endorsing the practices of mutual masturbation common among some homosexuals and whether you expect the church to do the same and whether you see such practices as the will of god clearly it's a bit of a no pun intended a hot button issue for her what did he do to inspire that <laughs> i have no idea you go check your bible neil is it you know every sperm is sacred and all that <laughs> You spill your seed on the ground. It's not. Yeah, yeah. It does not go down well. I of course, say. of course. I mean, the the full length clip of the performance is uh, it's out there on YouTube, and it is a masterpiece of innuendo. While he's introducing it, Chuck gives everyone the finger. And nobody in the audience gets it because, you know, the people of 1972 in Britain mm. still use two fingers because they're not traitorous cunts. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's hints in what he says about lesbianism yes. and homosexuality as well when he says, uh, uh, and all of that is fine. Yeah, um, Mary wouldn't have got that. No, bit under her radar, I guess. He does a series of cartoons which obviously have been pre done to some extent just so he can finish them off. So mm. we see Rolf in a pram, Rolf as a schoolboy, Rolf falling off a wall. Uh, Rolf underwater avoiding a crocodile and at the end Santa's holding a sign that reads happy 1973 what a shame he didn't turn the last one around to reveal that what he was actually drawing was a Rolf Aru masturbating over Mary Whitehouse <laughs> and matting up her best hat <laughs> Do you think he is essentially there as, as, as a distraction from the content yeah. of the record? Yeah, that's what I bit? think. Because it is close because it is close to Christmas. I mean, it's not no. Christmas, but yeah, that would that would just add more grist to her mill, wouldn't it? If if in any way it was kind of associated with with this sort of period yeah. of the year. But um 
Yeah, I mean, what's what a strange thing it, for for a, a pretty fucking awful record. <laughs> yeah, well, this is it. What like not only does Rolf detract from the joke for the people who are offended, it also detracts from having to watch Chuck Berry doing this. Yeah, yeah, completely. Like, I mean, you watch this; he's come a long way since Maybelline. Mm. In the same oh. way that COVID's come a long way since we could all have fun. <laughs> I mean, like, everybody knows that Chuck Berry is one of the greatest, right? But I think not everyone mm. really personally knows it, and they should, mm. right? If you listen to a decent pressing of Chuck Berry's 50s and very early 60s stuff, i.e. not a CD from a petrol station <laughs> or... One of those 80s albums of old hits where some tracks may have been re-recorded oh, by yeah. the original yeah, artist, yeah. i.e. the drummer and <laughs> four <laughs> blokes he met at Faith in Recovery. Um, <laughs> and it's just, you, you hear it and it's impossible not to feel it. If you've ever enjoyed any form of rock and roll music, it's impossible yeah. not to love. In the same way that it's impossible not to find Laurel and Hardy hilarious if you've ever laughed at anything, mm. ever. Mm. Because it's mm. that thing stripped down to the root and throbbing with the thrill of creation and the thrill of the now and the sheer delight of being there and doing it, you mm. know. But, mm. I mean, even then, Chuck was notorious for being a little bit money-minded. Um, by yeah. the 70s, he was mostly just touring around, showing up at the venue, demanding payment before the show, mm. and then going on with a local pickup band a lot of the time. Mm. They were often just local kids because there wasn't a rock band in the world who couldn't play Chuck Berry songs. Yeah. Yeah. And it was just down to luck and the mercurial moods of an often not very nice man, whether you got the blindingly brilliant rock and roll show that he could still do, or someone playing Johnny Be Good like he was slinging his 90th bin bag of the day onto the back of the dustbin line. (laughs) (laughs) He was ruthlessly mercenary. Um, yeah. Like throughout his career, to be honest with you, but mm. I mean, I remember him appearing on Aspel and Company in about 1987, and he was there to promote his autobiography. I'll never forget Michael Aspel just sort of genially says to him, "So I understand you'll be playing Johnny Be Good for us tonight," and Chuck Berry goes, "No, for second class money, you get a second class song," <laughs> <laughs> and he goes on to play Memphis, Tennessee instead. But I mean, it is sad in a way. Seeing this, I know it's, you know, whereas I had immense civic pride with the Lieutenant Pigeon connection, less so here. I mean, what Taylor's just said really matches up a lot, actually. With I found the Coventry Evening Telegraph review of Ooh. that performance of Dingling. And, and and the music journalist or whoever it was for the Coventry Evening Telegraph back then, he said, um, I thought it was easily the worst thing he's ever done. It mm. seems rather sad after all the great rock classics with those sly, perceptive lyrics he's recorded over the years, that the song which really establishes him should be this rather dubious rehashed nursery rhyme. And, mm. I, and I, think that, I think that's right. Um, but there's a lot of myths about that night, both in Coventry and kind of outside of Coventry, about what happened. I mean, Chuck Berry himself in his autobiography... He claims that there were 35,000 people in the crowd. And, you know, the Locarno Ballroom, or, I mean, Locarno Ballroom, which is, of course, my my school in a way, because it became Central Library mm-hmm. in Coventry, you know, certainly won't fit 35,000 people. It does take him about 20 minutes to teach 
the the crowd, the song. And that is the main trouble with this song. I fucking hate crowd participation, right. let alone hearing it or seeing it um, yeah, all, all sort of based around innuendo. Um, my band accidentally supported a Christian rock band once that started doing crowd participation and then nearly cringed myself inside out. Um, I want you to worship my (laughs) Christalized. They came out in the fucking crowd and started doing acapella shit. It was horrible. But, um, for the Coventry gig, I mean, it's interesting who's playing with him on this. You know, you've got half the average white band. You've got... Who are not on the single because it's just him. Yeah, yeah, and... I think on that night as well, the bass player is Nick Potter, who actually played with Van de Graaff Generator, oddly enough. Oh. And the whole thing's recorded on the Pi Mobile unit. And, and I, I would recommend, if you're going to listen to the London Sessions LP, there is that fantastic bit at the end of Johnny Be Good, where I do feel a bit of civic pride, just hearing Cov people go mental um, and hearing a Cov guy on the mic trying to get him to shut up. Um, he's like, look, there's about 2,000 people outside waiting for the Pink Floyd. We don't have a Floyd concert if we don't clear the place. It's as simple as that. This is the management. And then another bloke comes on, just going, hold it, kids. Hold it. If you're quiet for 30 seconds, I'll tell you what's happened. 30 seconds is all I ask, and I'll explain it all. And, of course, they don't. They they just keep rattling on. Another odd factor about this recording, by the way, is that... um, one of the engineers on the sound or, uh, or the part of the production crew for the gig was Graham Lewis from Wire. Oh. He was at Lanchester Poly at the time doing a sound production course. And he uh, he meets Chuck Berry years later and tells oh. him, yeah, I was there in Coventry <laughs> when you recorded that. And all Chuck Berry said to him, I think, was, um, thank God it wasn't Croydon, which is a strangely cryptic message. <laughs> but yeah, it's odd. I mean, the Coffee Evening Telegraph, every now and then, they do put out the call were you on this record? Yeah. You know, were you there that night? So it, it's entered this thing whereby in Cov, I think an awful lot of people claim they were there and they certainly weren't. Yeah. It's what you say about the audience participation, though. It's like in the same way that recording My Dingling is an extension of its financial cynicism. Yeah. It's like the interactive element here is sort of a way to make up for the loss of vitality, mm. you know. It's like, but it, it, and it feels a little bit calculating and insincere, you know, like he's reaching out to the audience, mm. but only to say, pull my finger, you know, because <laughs> it's like a magic spell, Chuck Berry's music. It's like most yeah. fundamentalist rock and roll. It's barely even music at all. And I mean that in a complimentary mm. way, right? It's based on a deep understanding of several styles of music, but in itself, it's just rhythm and drive and power and wit which when it works is magnificent mm. and mm. pure but when it doesn't there's nothing to fall back on because the performance yeah. is everything right like a chuck berry song performed with no pizzazz is like in a cardboard box with mm. nothing in it mm. you know and on this record it's like he's trying to replace that missing energy and invention and newness with sort of cheap Panto laughs, you know, which is maybe mm. better than replacing it mm. with nothing, or maybe it isn't. <laughs> it's like to use a Chuck Berry appropriate analogy. It's like if suddenly your car can only do thirty miles an hour, so 
you try to distract everyone from that with a honk if you're horny bumper sticker. You know what I mean? (laughs) But what I do like about this period of Chuck Berry is that it's the period where he looks most like my nan. Um, (laughs) Now, my nan was a white lady, but she really did facially look quite a lot like the middle-aged Chuck Berry. I don't know if it was the moustache or the duck walk or the or the video camera she set up in her toilet, but she, but no, she genuinely did have have the bone structure of Chuck Berry, and the, it, you only see it when Chuck gets a bit older. But this clip has always creeped me out a little bit for that reason. <laughs> He's got an amazing shirt on, hasn't he? Yeah, yeah. He always cuts a dash, Chuck. Mm. And and you know those early singles, as Taylor says, they're they're elemental. Yeah, biblical text in rock and roll. You know, they're, they're no Stones, no Beatles, no Beach Boys without those records. Mm. And you know the the return of rock and roll, if you like, or fifties rock and roll with seventy two is a big important part of an awful lot of the things we're looking at. I mean, bear in mind, you know, this is number one for four weeks in November and December, and the last number one album of the year in this country, anyway is, yeah, various artists, 25 rocking and rolling greats. Yes. All this stuff is coming back, you know. Yeah, I mean, he was the star turn of that big Wembley Stadium gig. Mm. Him and Bill Haley were the stars, simply because they were the only two who were actually from the 50s, who understood that, yeah. you know, they were playing to a load of 30-year-old Teds who wanted everything to sound exactly as it should. Yeah. Yeah. Little yeah. Richard yeah, yeah, was yeah. doing his early 70s stuff. He got booed mm. off. Gary Glitter and the move, we're never going to cut it. Screaming Lord Such, he did his usual stuff, uh, but during the daytime, mm-hmm. so it wasn't as scary as usual. And, um, you know, Billy Fury and all that lot pitched up, and so did a few others. But, yeah, Chuck Berry just went, oh, is this what you want? Or oh, this is what you'll have then, as long as I get me money mm. up front. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. And with this, he, he's just fucking about, and his record company's decided to put it out, and all of a sudden he's got a massive hit, so... Yeah, he's only number one. Right? Yeah, that's insane, isn't it? Yeah. It is, and it's kind of sad. And I mean, it's not sad for Chuck. I mean, I hope this isn't what people remember, that's all. Well, it proved not to be. Yeah. Apart yeah. from the sort of people who uh, write letters that go, when, oh, when, will the so-called BBC <laughs> yes. understand that decent people have had just about enough of this torrent of bad language and sexual smut? Most <coughs> sincerely, Mr and Mrs B.I.G. Tits, 69 <laughs> Knob End, Penis Town. I mean, she went on to say that um, she'd had reports from her mates in the National Fucking Nosy Cunt Association <laughs> that the young children were were actually getting their penises out and shaking them about while singing this song. And I can't remember doing that myself, but I mm. I knew exactly what the song was about and I fucking loved it. Yeah. I always thought I was a really nice, advanced young lad, but then... My favourite auntie, the last conversation we had before she died, she said, oh, Al, you were my favourite nephew. You were such a dirty little bastard. And I went, what? <laughs> he said, yeah, you'd come round my house and you'd, you'd tell me dirty jokes, really filthy <laughs> jokes that I don't think you understood what they meant. And every time you said one, before you said it, you'd give me this look of warning mm. and point at me and say... Don't you laugh at this, Auntie Chris, because if you do, you'll fall on your fan ass. <laughs> this is a four-year-old child saying this. So, so yeah, I blame 
Chuck Berry for everything in my life. Yeah, do you think it starts here, Al, with this record? Yeah, yeah. it does. Yeah. It does. <laughs> so my ding-a-ling would spend four weeks at number one, just failing to become the Christmas number one of 1972, when it was pipped at the post by long-haired lover from Liverpool, by little homunculus Osmond. <laughs> the follow-up... A live version of Reeling and Rocking would get to number 18 in February of 1973, his last tinkle of the charty bell. And Mary Whitehouse spent most of December in America on a three-week trip to study their tele, paid for by her gullible acolytes, and would spend much of her time there trying to get Chuck Berry to debate her on a chat show about why he wants to make British kids mash their genitals. (laughs) Sadly, he declined, but like Alice Cooper, sent her a bunch of flowers, thanking her for helping to keep the song at number one for so long. (laughs) And when she returned to Britain, she started the National Viewers and Listeners Association Award for broadcasters and programmes who weren't encouraging the kids to murder or fiddle with each other, which was won this year by Cliff Richard. It was also awarded in 1987 to Frank Boff for services to broadcasting. And in 1977 to... Uh, I think I can guess. Jimmy Savile for uh, yes. Jim will fix it. One more time now, my. Oh, my. Slow down now. I want to play with my jingle. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan, crusted chicken, or garlic, butter, shrimp, scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Thank you very much. I wish I could draw like that. Uh, that is absolutely sensational. Back we go to music with the fabulous Michael Jackson. Rolf steps away from the easel to rejoin Tone, who tells him he wishes he could draw like that, and it was absolutely sensational. Rolf, looking a bit pissed off, gives his one-finger wave, 
almost the same one that Tony used to get from Barbara Windsor. (laughs) Conjuring up a nightmare vision of what may have occurred in the dressing room beforehand, before he walks off, leaving Tony to introduce Rockin' Robin by Michael Jackson. We've covered the bad king of pop loads on chart music and this is the year that, like Donair, he was spun off from his band and given the opportunity to kickstart a solo career and this is his second single as a Jackson One. It's the follow-up to Got To Be There, which got to number five in March, and is a cover of the 1958 Bobby Day single that got to number 29 in November of that year. It entered the chart at number 43 in May, then hopped 10 places to 33, then bopped up 11 places to 22, then soared 12 places to number 10, and two weeks later, it got to number 3, its highest position. Unbelievably, the clip that Tony introduces has never been seen before. It was recorded the previous month when the Jackson 5 were in the UK for the Royal Variety Show and recorded at the same time as they were in to record performances of Ben and looking through the windows. So never seen before, but fucking hell, one of the landmark appearances on Top of the Pops, I believe. I'm sorry, Bowie, but to me and my compatriots in the Rudy guys, this is our Starman moment. It's fucking brilliant. (laughs) I must say, in an episode stuffed with weirdo sex offenders, it's nice to see an innocent young face. (laughs) But yeah, man, how cool are the Jackson 5 here? Oh, they look amazing. They're cool in a way that no other boy band has ever been. Sort of genuine no. idiosyncrasy between the members. A true star in their midst. Diamond tight, loose and cool, able to manage with everything. I mean, it's just odd that they're there, though, isn't it? Because it's a solo tune. Mm. It's um, They're yeah. not on the record. I mean, this is why you could ask the pop quiz question, what similarity does this have with Maggie May? Mm. Um, another solo record where the faces came on, you know, and... and Played it. Obviously, the best Jackson's record this year is looking through the windows, but yes. um, this is a delight. Yeah, because yeah, I've always been confused whether this was a Michael Jackson single or a Jackson 5 single, and this complicates matters considerably. Because mm. it almost sounds like they play on it, the guitar part and everything else. Yes. Yeah, they're there, yeah. But I'm pretty yeah. sure it is It is a solo Michael Jackson thing, isn't it? It's off his The record is a solo Michael Jackson thing. Mm. Again, this is one of those ones where it's not completely clear what we're actually listening to. Mm. Because I was thinking, right, when this comes on, at this point of the show, it's kind of necessary to have something here with a lively rhythm track, which Mm. I suppose is sort of a euphemism for black. Um, (laughs) Because as fantastic as this episode is, it's very much not brought to you by Johnson Products Company, makers of Ultra Sheen, Afro Sheen, and Ultra Sheen <laughs> Cosmetics. Certainly it's a not. very white pop dominated episode yeah. where even Roberta Flack is singing a Ewan McCall ballad. Mm. And a double dose of the Osmonds pushes those levels of whiteness up to the point where you need to wear eye protection. And that's okay. <laughs> but it's just that after this many slight variations on the shuffle beat, a Motown rhythm section is mm. going to sound even more exquisite than it really is. Except, I think that what we're listening to here is a hybrid. I think this may be a certain giant cartoon dog just mm. about rising to the occasion. Yes! This is not the record. It sounds not much like the record at all. No. Uh, which is good, because it's credited to a, a different artist. And 
The greatest compliment I can pay is that for about 10 seconds, I wasn't sure whether this is a drummer that the Jacksons brought with them or whether Mm. it's the Top of the Pops Orchestra drummer. And I think that says a little bit less about how funky the drumming is here and a little bit more about how simple this song is. But I think it's the Top of the Pops Orchestra drummer, partly because towards the end he's getting a bit splashy Mm. and hitting a bit bluntly in a way that you would not hear from any drummer associated with the Motown organisation. Even some guy they contracted for foreign tours, right? So it's either the the worst ever performance by a Motown-affiliated drummer or the best ever performance by a Top of the Pops orchestra drummer. And I think it's the latter because if you listen, not especially closely to their live performance of this, which they did on the Royal Variety performance with their regular drummer, Mm. this isn't that guy. (laughs) That guy is hot as shit, right? This guy, no, it survives. It survives. That's what you can say. Yeah, but the top of the Pops Orchestra, they, you know, as we've seen before, you know, when they did, did I Don't Know Why I Love You by Stevie Wonder, that was the top of the Pops yeah. Orchestra. And they just about hung in there. Yeah. Well, it depends. It depends, doesn't it? I think it was a bit later, uh, after a few changes in personnel, where the bear took hold. Yeah, uh, but I think it works because Rockin' Robin, like the original, is one of those really primitive R&B records where mm. it's just like this basic slamming swing. You yeah. know, like yeah, a... Yeah loping sort of finger clicking wallop Mm. there's no proper bass on it at all it's just this big thumping beat and it's easy to play and you have to make it work with energy and and personality you know and this arrangement is a little bit updated and it's got the more sort of fluid 70s bass on it and everything but Mm. it's still it's really there as a vehicle for personality in this case Mm. little michael's uh vocal personality and yeah. so you're barely conscious of anything else, you know, as long as it doesn't go out of time or out of tune. Yeah. Really, all you're listening to is Michael showing out, you know, for better or for worse, mostly yeah. for better. Oh, it's an outstanding performance. Yeah. Yeah, he's amazing. Oh. And the, TO, the TOTP orchestra, yeah, they're not as deft as the Funk Brothers, of course. No. But all you need is that thump and Michael's lovely yeah. face and their amazing outfits. And, yeah, it's, it's tremendously yeah. exciting, especially after what's come before. Mm. And Tito's guitar solo. Yeah. yeah. Almost the best bit, because it's really clicky and trebly and horrible, like on a 50s record. Yeah. You know? And he slightly fucks it up at one point, which makes it more exciting. Mm. And, in fact, every time I've ever heard Tito playing guitar live, it's always sounded great like mm. really lean and attacking and is that he's not like a virtuoso or anything but he's got a really fantastic feel to his guitar playing i mean one thing that never gets mentioned about michael jackson at this time he was he was the first black male that teenage girls in britain were allowed to scream at i mean over in america jermaine's being pushed as the as the heartthrob right but over here the triumvirate of teeny lust was always donny osmond david cassidy and michael jackson Mm. i mean yeah okay in music star and mirabelle and all that lot he was more portrayed as a as a as a lovable teddy bear kind of thing. Yeah, he seemed like a really big deal. It is, I mean, it, it, it is a big deal, and also one has to bear in mind. You know, Taylor mentioned it's quite a white episode in a sense. But one of the things that um, came out of my conversation with Dennis Bavel actually that I mentioned earlier was that when he used to watch things like the Jackson Five on on Top of the Pops, 
But it's so fucking important if you're a black kid, you know, yeah. seeing those people. And, you know, it's not like you can go back into school the next day and say, stop being a racist, the Jackson Fiver on top of the pops last night. But mm. it's something, you know, it's a little thing. Yeah. It's something. And, um, yeah, these appearances would have been massively important to the black community in this country mm. as, as not only something for the kids to aspire to, if you like, but just look, look at this fucking band. And then, you know, especially if you're going to compare them to the Osmonds. You know what I mean? Yeah. They are a cut above. I know the Osmonds are doing crazy horses on this, but in terms of performance, in terms of confidence and joy, where the Osmonds can sometimes feel a little forced, the Jacksons never seem like that. They seem like no. totally natural, fluid, brilliant performers. I mean, as a matter of fact, a month ago, Pi Records put out a single by the 11-year-old Rachel Brennock under the name Weenie Bopper, <laughs> entitled David, Donnie and Michael. Right. <laughs> who brightens up my bedroom wall? Who looks at me when I sleep at night? Who do I think of when I go to school each day? David, Donna, and Michael, we love you all. When boys phone me up and ask me for a date, I know it's just no good. They've asked me much too late. I stay inside my room, my radio turned on loud. Because David... Donna, Michael, we love you all. Aww. I bet Mary Whitehouse was thinking about kicking off. But you know what? Having these heartthrobs is keeping the young girls away from the scabby youths on their estate who want to finger them behind the chip shop. Yeah. They should be yeah. commended for that. Yeah. It's, the, the performance of this song is better to me than the record. I'm not that into those early solo Michael Jackson records, really. Like even this song. I mean, Oh, come on. I want to be where you are. That's a fucking tune, mate. Yeah, it's not that none of them are any good. I just think sandwiched in between Jackson 5 and, like, his later stuff, like, you know, Off the Wall and mm. and so on. It's just, I don't know, I just can't get... as this. It's too much of it is too sloppy, you know, or too throwaway. Um, mm. Even, you know, even this... I mean, this song, which is, I think, about Robin Thicke, if I'm not entirely mistaken. <laughs> I mean, who else could it be about? Um, Robin Day. Oh, uh, yeah, yeah, it could be. I don't know, I'll have to look it up. But I think the thing about this as well is this particular December, the existence of anything that reminds me of a thing called Christmas is a bit frustrating and, mm. and annoying, mm. you know. But yeah, this performance of this, to me, is the best version of this that I've ever heard, mm. except for the version on the Royal Variety performance, which is better. Yeah. It could have been Robin Asquith. <laughs> a highlight in a show studded with highlights. It's ridiculous. It just gets better and better, this episode. Yeah, and the good bits, they make you forget the bad bits. Yeah, Nielsen's been banished from my mind <laughs> by about this time. Yeah, you're happily watching the Jackson 5 with your cock waving in the air. Yes. <laughs> so the follow-up, a cover of Bill Withers's Ain't No Sunshine, got to number eight for three weeks in September, and he'd round off the year with Ben getting to number seven three weeks ago. Unlike Donnie, Michael was then folded back into the Jackson 5, and although he recorded an album's worth of solo material in 1973, it was quietly scrapped and then allegedly lost by Motown by the time the band had moved to Epic in 1975, which meant his solo career was put on hold for seven years when he roared back with Don't Stop Till You Get Enough, which got to number three in October of 1979. 
And five years after that, Motown conveniently found those 1973 recordings and put them out on the LP Farewell My Summer Love, the title track of which gets into number seven in June of 1984. And Weenie Bopper went on to be the original singer on I Lost My Heart to a Starship Trooper until she was taken off the record for Sarah Brightman and Hot Gossip, may have been on Video Killed the Radio Star, and was a backing singer on Pink Floyd's tours of the late 80s under the name Rachel Fury. Don't know why she changed her name. For Bobby Day, and there we had the Jackson family getting it together. From one bopper sensation to another, this is T Rex and Metal Guru. Edmunds getting down with the kids tells us that that was a cover version and tells us that we're going from one bopper sensation to another as he introduces Metal Guru by T-Rex. Formed from the ashes of Tyrannosaurus Rex in 1970, T-Rex binned off the bongos and acoustic guitars and went electric to the disgust of their old hippie audience and to the absolute delight of the pop-crazed youngsters. They immediately made their mark with Rider White Swan, which got to number two in January of 71, immediately followed it up with Hot Love, which got to number one a mere two months later, and featured a performance on Top of the Pops where Chalita Secunda, the wife of the band's manager, selected that a bit of glitter on his cheeks would go nicely with his new satiny rig out, marking the official birth of glam. Since then, it's been nothing but number ones and number twos for the band. And this, the second cut from their LP, The Slider, which was recorded in Paris, Copenhagen and Los Angeles, is the follow-up to Telegram Sam, which got to number one for two weeks in February. It smashed into the charts at number nine in the first week of May, and a week later it banished the foul stench of amazing grace by the pipes and (laughs) drums of the military band of the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards. And here they are again in a special recording for this episode. I do believe they recorded it on the same day as they did Telegram Sam for the Christmas Top of the Pops. Right. In the vital second to last slot, you'll notice, which is traditionally the place where the number one single resides, and it, it seems right that this is here, because if anyone has single-handedly dragged pop music away from the Dave D. creepy twat and cunts of the 60s and placed it squarely in the 70s, it's this man right here, isn't yeah. it? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's the thing. And we have to, you know, it's it's telling that you say this man and you don't say T-Rex. Mm. You know, for me, rock and pop is about, the music is about collaboration. And I'm always kind of wary of foregrounding individuals. Mm. You know, much as with, with Bowie, the collaborators are important. In, in, in Mark Boland's case, Visconti is really important. But I do give Mark Boland full credit for making himself a pop star. For, for for turning electric and and he's he's probably 
you know I love the Stones, and they'll always mm. be my favourite band. Mark is probably the single figure individual I love the most in the mm. entire history of British pop. You've written some lovely articles about him, Neil. Well, I mean, I was talking with Taylor the other day uh, online about how neither of us have been asked to write about the Beatles. And, you know, uh, I was so glad when the quietest asked me to write about T-Rex because he's so important to me, Mark. Uh, he's He's the pop star whose death upsets me the most because I can't help thinking of what he might have done. Yeah. The first thing that grabbed me with Mark Boland wasn't his music in a way. It was, uh, I remember my older sister, so much comes through my older sister. She had a friend called Nathan, and he, he, he had this coat whose entire lining had been transformed into a robbing kind of receptacle and he just used to go around shoplifting. And I remember he came to ours, our house once after a trip to Cov HMV. Uh, in about 83, I think it was. I'd have been about 10 or 11. And he carefully lifted this kind of record from this this mega pocket in this coat. And I just remember holding it in my hand and staring and staring and staring at the cover until the image on it kind of danced with light. Uh, it seemed full of possibility. And that record, you know, even before I'd heard a lick of the music, was Electric Warrior by T-Rex. Right. And I was I was hooked from that moment, uh, just looking at it. I didn't get to hear that record straight away. The thing that first hooked me musically into Mark was one of those double LP compilations that came out in the 80s. It was Mark mm. Bowler one with the white sleeve. I remember it very distinctly. I mean, really on the radio and on, on sort of archive shows and stuff like that, Get It On was pretty much the only Mark you heard anywhere at that time. I couldn't believe what I was hearing on that compilation in terms of, you know, Solid Gold, Easy Action and the singles. But beyond the delight of, of discovering that music, he was properly inspirational at that time in my life. As somebody trying to play guitar, he taught me in a way that no other guitarist I was listening to at the time was. You can play Get It On. You can play 20th Century Boy really quite easily mm. because Mark took inspiration from what we might call simple music. In a sense, Metal Guru is quite a simple song. It's got about three, four chords in it, but what a big fucking walloping slab of wonder this record is. Oh, Remain, it probably remains amazing. one of my favourite T-Rex singles. Yeah. It's a song that's all chorus. It's he and Visconti's most wall of sound production, but as ever with Mark, it's full of those little details that mm. always, for me, lift him a, a bit apart, um, lift him a bit a bit beyond. But I better shut up because uh, I, I could talk about Mark all night. Um, he's so, so important to me. Yeah, this is my favourite T-Rex single. It's a toss-up between this and Solid Gold Easy Action. Mm. And the fact we've never spoken about T-Rex before, I think this was one of the main reasons why I went for this. Right. When I watched it, it's like, oh my God, we've got to cover this. And then when this happened, it's like, right, okay, that's it. Yeah, completely. And I, this record, it's just irresistible. I mean, there is not a better intro phrase than, oh, whoa, yeah, the way that Mark mm. does it at the beginning. It just launches you into this thing. The performance yeah. on this episode is actually a mess and Mark seems a bit out of it. The band seem a bit pissed. Yeah. It's got a kind of fag end of the fag end of the Christmas party feel to it. But it doesn't matter because you can no. still hear the record and, and the record's no, this amazing. Is, this is a victory lap, isn't it? Mm. Yeah, that's probably why he's been at the Shampers. So clearly, on the coke and the fry up. Um, but some committed miming of the congas, though, is such an important mm. part of this record. Yes. <laughs> Good to see everyone take their responsibilities seriously. I missed this for my birthday number one by a couple mm. of weeks. Oh. A friend of mine got it. 
I got Amazing Grace by the oh, Pipes no, and Drums mate. military band of the Royal Scots Dragoon Guards, appropriately enough. <laughs> but yeah, even with Mark a little bit too loose, as I dare to say he is here, you still mm. get mm. that same particular energy from this performance, which is so different from Slade or Gary Glitter yeah. or any of T-Rex's yeah, yeah. peers. Because there's no wink, there's no grin, there's no pantomime dame moves. There's nothing to suggest that this is a laugh or even to acknowledge that there's anything recreational happening here. It's like in his head, Mm. this is all deadly serious and dragons really do exist. Which, of course, is what makes it work the way it does. It's an entire enchanted castle held up by the imagination, you know. But his Mm. conviction is so strong and so appealing that you're totally confident walking up the stairs, you know. If somebody says, hang on, this whole group is just a, a few ancient rock and roll riffs repeated endlessly over a basic boogie beat with like an old Sid Barrett impersonator off his head chanting ludicrous yeah. rhymes over the top. Well, you can't say that they're factually wrong, but you can <laughs> wonder how they get out of bed every day on what yeah. is, after all, just a little round rock spinning pointlessly in empty space <laughs> full of jabbering, hairless monkeys. I mean, it's one way of looking at it, but mm. you've got something missing if that's all you can see. It's, oh, you know, sex is just two or three people bumping against each other, right? And what's <laughs> the big deal with a sunset? I mean, my word, I'm a cynical yeah. man in my old age, but if I ever end up like that... I'll save the rest of the world the pain of of putting up with me, right? You look at Mark's eyes sparkling drunkenly in the studio lights here. I mean, he can barely stay upright in this clip. And still, Mm. right there is a a physical representation of all the valid reasons to stay alive. The thing about Mark Bolin is, if you came up to me and said, well, look, here's this pop star that's coming on soon, right? He's really influenced by Tolkien. (laughs) He goes around thinking he's summer. He claims to be the most important poet of his generation. (laughs) Uh, He he ponces about Big Star and girls really like him. I think, well, fuck off with that. Why do I need that in my life? And if the person had said, well, no, it's Mark Bolin, I'd be like, oh, fucking yes. Put him on now. (laughs) Everything wrong and pretentious about pop, you could sum up with Mark Boland. But if you think that, then you're not looking at pop, right? Yeah. And and also everything that's shameless and mercenary about pop in a sense. I mean, that was what was weird for me in 83. You know, getting into this artist. And then, you know, inevitably at the time, you'd go to the Locarno slash the library. and You'd you'd have to read books about these people Mm. because there wasn't anything in the contemporary magazines. And most of what I was reading about Mark Bolan in most rock literature, if you like, or the rock textbooks, conformed to that kind of lingering perception of him in the press towards the mid-70s as as kind of somewhat shameless, a chaser of mass appeal. Mm. Like, that's a bad thing. Like, that shouldn't be the point when it so clearly nearly always should be. You know, and the books and the pop encyclopedias that I was was pretty much all I had to go on in order to flesh out my listening. They had him down basically as a fly-by-night and a kind of flash in the pan whose demise and disappearance were a kind of inevitable result of his limitations 
Um, and, you know, Bowie, Roxy, pioneers. Bolan, kind of a bit of a cut above mud, perhaps, but not by much. Yeah, he's, he's always been seen as the Soleri to Bowie's Mozart, isn't he? Uh, totally, uh, which I would massively disagree with. I mean, look, it's not a competition. I do prefer Mark to David. But mm. I also found the narrative, once I read further and deeper... Of how Mark had that Judas moment that you mentioned, you know. I found that moment when he went electric, when Peel disdained him, you know, when he, yeah. uh, you know, when he appears at the Wheelie Festival just outside Clacton with the faces and status quo in August 71 and he gets booed off. Well, he gets booed because he comes on and says, hello, you might have seen me on top of the pot, so I'm a star. I mean, yeah. he gives a good <laughs> quote. There's no denying it, Mark. He, 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 he really does. He, he pisses off exactly the right people but I found all of that tremendously exciting and and I mean as soon as he starts appealing to teenage girls that section of the audience that's basically responsible for so much of pop history but so disdained and seen as an yeah. instant sign of creative bankruptcy by rock critics that I, I just think the critics got marked so wrong yeah. and when my sister finally borrowed Electric Warrior and I got to listen to it it was one of my first lessons if you like in how deceitful the canon can be in a way and reductive and wrong it can be. Yeah. I mean, look, if you're a kid and you drop the needle on Mambo Sun or Rip Off or Motivate or anything mm. like that, or, or if we're talking about the slider and you start listening to stuff like Buick McCain and Chariot Chugal, that's going to hook you. This is mm. a guy... He's natural, he's weird, he's beyond artifice, and his music is just intensely, intensely pleasurable. And and that's the key thing. In this period in particular, I do think in this early 70s period of increasing kind of wooliness and ponderousness for progressive sounds, it is revolutionary what he does. Um, An attempt to... In a sense, simplify or distill things, much like Sabbath were. Or, I mean, not comparable, but much like Sabbath were. The Modern Lovers or the New York Dolls, these are the interesting people, the little Richard freaks mm. in the early 70s who don't just like put on a pair of brothel creepers or do the kind of happy days type shit. They bring back the weirdness of 50s and old music. That's the yeah. crucial thing yeah. with Mark, yeah. I think. You know, all of his inspirations throughout any interview you read with Mark Bolan. He's going to disdain everyone who's contemporary and white. You know, he's going to slag off Slade. He's going to slag off Bowie. He's going to he's going to talk about black music almost exclusively because all he listened to was black music, old R and B and blues and rock and roll and stuff. But whereas a lot of white musicians at the time were taking those old forms and playing them at a billion miles an hour to prove their virtuosity, Mark just innately understood the weirdness of that music, the kookiness, mm. and he populated those kind of forms with his own shape and style that's why i'll come back to the guitar playing thing the delight you have as a young player when you can genuinely play like your heroes when you can play like mark and it is easy to play like mark he's such an important teacher in that regard Mm. he is a bit of a mess in this performance and the official version i guess for even those people who like mark and t-rex is that he starts losing it pretty soon you know, yeah. th- th- this is his, this is his king year. But I don't know. Think of the singles that are about to come. You know, Groover, 20th Century Boy, Solid Gold, Easy Action. It's difficult to see it as a moment where he falls off. Things no. are, are going to start falling apart for him personally soon. You know, his marriage breaks down next year. He treats his band really shoddily and Tony Visconti really shoddily. And that doesn't help his sense of isolation and paranoia. You can see how big his ego is getting that year. I mean, there's a brilliant quote from him in 72 when he's asked about, you know, the supposed feud with uh, David Bowie. And he says, 
I don't consider David to be even remotely near big enough to give me any competition. <laughs> you know, he says, uh, it's quite a long quote, but I'm going to read it because I think it's, it's revealing. At the time the feud story hit England, my records were number one and they stayed number one while David's never came near. I don't think that David has anywhere near the charisma or balls that I have or Alice has or Donny Osmond has got. David's not going to make it in any sort of way. The papers try and manufacture a lot of things. They try to do something with Slade. Slade's just a jive little group who are quite sweet and bang about a lot. They're very valid for what they do, but I don't think anyone can seriously compare them to me. Whether you think I'm good or bad, I'm still the best-selling poet in England. I don't think anyone in Slave can write four words. And I don't mean to be condescending. They're nice people. Bowie just doesn't have that sort of quality that I do. I always have. Rod Stewart has it in his own mad way. Elton John has it. Mick Jagger has it. Michael Jackson has that quality. David Bowie doesn't, I'm sorry to say. Right now, I'm the biggest selling poet in England. I hope to be even bigger. I mean, those kind of arrogant quotes oh. <laughs> are going to piss people off. And, and of course, it's setting himself up for the overwhelming narrative later on in the decade to be, in a sense, that David won that feud. Yeah. He might as well have finished that quote with the phrase, and I will never, ever get my comeuppance. <laughs> yes. Yeah, it's setting himself up for huge hubris. But I would actually argue that in terms of apprehending and absorbing contemporary black pop, the moves that David Bowie and Roxy make sort of by about 75, they lag behind what Mark's about to do with Tanks and with the Zinc Alloy albums. I think those albums are fantastic. And this is the thing, for me, he never made a bad record. That run from 70 to 77 isn't really spoken about like that. I, I mean, I'm a fanboy. I'll even argue the toss for Bowl and Zip Gun and Futuristic Dragon and things like that. Things that are commonly seen as, as sad documents of a demise. But I still get a lot of delight from them. I think he stayed hungry till the end and he was making amazing music all the way through to the end. Well, no, I agree that he didn't make a bad record. I think he made less good records. Yeah. But I don't think he made a bad one. And I think, in fact, you can hear... In this, the beginning of what was going to begin with tanks mm. of that sort of sludging up yeah. of T Rex, right? Which is which made them less good, but it didn't make them not good. Mm. You know, I mean, this song is blatantly half finished, um, <laughs> which is something that I sort of like about it. Um, but that slackness can happen when very narcissistic people become successful, mm. because the drive for success that they had which made them try so hard because it was necessary for them to succeed, which was necessary for their psychological survival, um, when they get what they want, can sort of go a bit. Yeah. And they can just find themselves, you know, like, hey, I, you know, everything I do is great yeah. because I'm so fascinating. Mm. And, yeah, I mean, the whole purpose of this song is to be incredibly repetitive. But you can sort of feel that lack of a bridge or a middle eight and the sort yeah. of the swollen confidence to s- just to listen to that lovely, sighing and hysterical circular melody and just think, well, there it is. There's the song. Yeah. That's all we need. You know, pass the champagne. <laughs> um, but I mean, to be honest, I don't care. And the only thing that annoys me about that is the fact that it means there's a subsequent shortage of lyrics because the more words in a Bolan song, the better yeah. as far as I'm concerned. Mm. I mean, of course, he wasn't any kind of poet <laughs> as he idiotically believed himself to be because nothing he ever wrote has got any actual meaning or weight to it of any kind. But he was a fabulous writer. Yeah. Just purely in terms of creating 
streams of words which were cliche-free and flowed directly from this very singular imagination, right? People scoff at nonsense, mm. but there's nonsense and then there's nonsense, right? Like the lyrics of Mark Bolan, like the more elevated artistic and disturbed lyrics of his hero Sid Barrett are nonsense but they're a completely different proposition to for example the lyrics of Noel Gallagher yeah yeah and it's not because they've been worked on harder and it's not because they mean more they probably mean less if anything uh but it's the difference between on the one hand writing that transports and disorientates you and stimulates your mind with surprises and illogical angles and unusual thought and on the other hand just just mental incontinence just dripping from a fundamentally ordinary brain you know it's like i'd said this in the past like defending monty python it's like the difference between surrealism and the kind of shit that the kids call lol random (laughs) like one of them is potent and the other one is inert because like anyone can write down the first thing that comes into their head and get a cross between a a nursery rhyme a shopping list and just a rerun of other people's cliches like you know gallagher style whereas it's the definition of talent to look inside your head and immediately see something a little bit more unusual than that. Mm-hmm. And obviously a lot of it is in the delivery, because let's face it, if Mark Bolan had sung Slowly Walking Down the Hall faster than a cannonball, <laughs> it would sound visionary, right? <laughs> well, and if Oasis had sung, you know, I have never ever kissed a car before, it's like a door, um, we'd all just snort, appropriately enough. But the thing is, even when Mark Bolan has got no inspiration and the song is just a riff and the words obviously don't seem to have come, you still end up with something like Space Boss, a song which I love, even though it mostly just goes, are you, are you, are you, are you, are you now the Space Boss? (laughs) And if if I had a load of money, I would patent one of those plastic boxes that goes under the bed like for storage and down the side of a wardrobe or something and call it the space boss <laughs> whenever i used to look at the tv listings a few years ago there was always a show on which i never saw called cake boss and it always gave me that earworm <laughs> that cake boss but in a way what mark does with his lyrics if they were all just kind of nonsensical mashups of science fiction and 50s imagery they wouldn't work occasionally he does reach your heart in a deep deep way mm. my youngest sophia looks like mark bowling she's got long curly hair and she loves <laughs> mark bowling and we were listening to spaceball ricochet in the car the other day which is one of the great songs off slider and of course there's that line me and my les paul even though i'm small i enjoy living anyway it's a beautiful line man and it, it touches her the way she looks at mark is really quite amusing actually I, I catch her sometimes looking just looking at pictures of him and you know <laughs> clearly in love slight maybe narcissism because she does look a bit like him but um you know he does get you in the heart and, and, and he, he's probably the rock death in a way that upsets me the most mm. his death in 77 is for me the most upsetting rock bereavement of all time Next to kind of Jimmy, I think. Not just because of the horrible random tragedy of the nature of his death, but because like Jimmy, I still get the sense, even after Dandy and the Underworld, which I think is probably his worst record, you get the sense that there's a man who's got still got a lot to offer. 
and yeah. so much more to give. And and just as it's heartbreaking thinking of what Jimmy might have done in the seventies, I feel robbed in a sense. Even if it was was going to be disastrous, Mark in the late seventies, early eighties, when yeah. so much of what was going on in UK pop music was so clearly made by his devotees, and that mm. goes all the way from I don't know Pete Shelley to Simon Le Bon. You know, when he finally gets starts getting taken seriously as one of British pop music's most important figures, he's not there. And and I do wonder yeah. what he would have done with the changing technology of 80s pop. Oh, he would so have made a synth out. Oh, without a doubt. Mm. And probably he would have ended up, I don't know, propping up the sofa on um, on Pebble Mill with Gloria Honeyford or something. But I, yeah. I wish I could have seen it. You know, every morning I, when I drop my Sophia at school, I, I say the same thing. Have a good day. Try your best. Make us proud. Keep a little mark in your heart. Okay. And she says, keep a little mark <laughs> in your heart. But and, and if I send one message out to the to the pot crazy youngsters. I think everyone should keep a little mark in your heart. And if you've got Mark down, I don't know, it's just a singles artist or, you know, don't. Get those albums, all of those albums, and, and dig in because there's so much wonder in there. 1972 really was Mark Boland's year, wasn't it? He did the gig at the Empire Pool, which the enemy splashed all over the front page saying, full report on the incredible concert that changed the face of British rock. <laughs> he danced, he pranced, danced, strutted, screamed, seemed unquestioned lord of them all. This was Mark Bolin at Wembley on Saturday. Love him or loathe him, the truth was plain to see. Bolin's time had come. And then they've got a photo of Ringo Starr, who was making the film about Mark mm. Bolin, which is in the cinema this week, just staring on, looking awestruck, and more importantly, being surrounded by people who don't give the slightest fuck that there's a beetle in front of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. But, I mean, what what should happen, of course, is that Mark's success should mean that he's accepted by that kind of tier of rock royalty a little bit. Mm. But he's not. You know, and, and quite uh, the other day, oddly enough, on Facebook, I saw a photo of Mark Bowling with Robert Plant. And I thought, that ain't right. That can't be real. And it is shopped. When I dug into it, it was shopped. Because Led Zeppelin aren't going to hang around with Mark Boland. Mark Boland's appearing in Jackie magazine. And he starts, in this period anyway, 72, 73, certainly, to pick up a lot of snottiness from the music press mm. about pretty much everything he does, precisely because he started appealing to teenage girls. Mm. So, yeah, he, he is kind of kept out of that tier, if you like. Have you got a favourite Mark Boland line? Ooh. I think... Mine is probably from Raw Ramp. Mm. I mean, almost all of Raw Ramp. You know, as a baby, I got metal knees. (laughs) Oh, yeah. Lady, your lips are the most. Baby, your mouth is like a ghost. Woman, I love your chest. Baby, I'm crazy about your breasts. (laughs) You think you're a champ. But girl, you ain't nothing but a raw ramp. Or <laughs> <laughs> oh, that amazing non sequitur from the slider. Um, I have always, always grown my own before. Yeah. <laughs> All schools are strange. <laughs> no, 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 wait, wait, wait. My favourite one, the actual transition moment between the Tolkien woodland bollocks. Mm. I mean, I like a lot yeah, of Transfers yeah. Rex, but it is Tolkien woodland bollocks. And pop art absurdism, which is at the end of Sun Eye on the first T-Rex album. Um, The last lines of which, let me see if I can remember them off the top of my head. Tree wizard, the pure tongue, the digger of holes, (laughs) swan king, the elf lord, the eater of souls, 
Live on the Black, the Rider of Stars, Tyrannosaurus Rex, the Eater of Cars. <laughs> Hey. Oh, man. He could do anything. It's like the sun coming out from behind a cloud, that last line. <laughs> it's like, it reminds me of when I used to take LSD, and sometimes mm. me and my friends would get pen and paper out and write for an hour or so, mm. um, and then do readings for each other with everyone in hysterics on acid, <laughs> laughing at each other's unfathomable mm. uh, blank verse. Um, and when you see that writing the next day, it's just gibberish, but it's not banal gibberish because it's gibberish from peculiar places that you don't quite recognise, parts of your mind you don't usually use, you know. The only <laughs> line I can ever remember from that was, uh, we think of broil, toilet twats, retractable outlet crabs, mm. um, which is like, it's basically a less terse sleep of mods <laughs> lyric. Or, you know, but I'd, I'd take it over Don't Look Back in Anger. Yeah. You know what I mean? Or the 20th century book of English verse. I mean, it's a it's a talent to be able to do that at will. And if you can mix that talent with immense personal charisma and absolutely zero self-consciousness, and you take those skills to the one art form that really appreciates them, it's astonishing what you can do. In terms of miraculous achievements, although, you know, he made so much great music, when I think about sort of his charm, you know, for five minutes, he makes you not mind Scylla Black yes. when they do Life's a Gas. <laughs> you know, that that is testament to the power of the man. And one thing, I mean, when I was a kid, T-Rex isn't in my life. Mm. All I can remember of T-Rex, I was convinced that they had witches in their band. Those backing singers who were male, who were just keen and howl. And it was terrifying. Yeah, I, I expected yeah. to yeah. turn on top of the pops. And you woman out a Lieutenant Pigeon to be there with her mate, <laughs> keening and howling. If there weren't witches, there were definitely some hags on this record. Oh, definitely. Definitely. <laughs> so Metal Guru would spend four weeks at number one, eventually giving way to Vincent by Don McLean. The follow-up, Children of the Revolution, got to number two for three weeks in September and October, held off the top by Mama, We're All Crazy Now by Slade, and How Can I Be Sure by David Cassadere. And they'd round off the year with solid gold easy action as the Christmas number three, getting to number two on the first week of 1973. Oh, that's a banger. Oh, absolutely. What a fucking record. Hey, hey, hey. Evening. Yes, everybody, you know. That's a T-Rex and Metal Guru. And that's it. We've run right out of time. A reminder that next week, Top of the Pops at a different time. It's 6.45. Anyway, best wishes for the new year from everyone here. Tell you what, we'll play Back Off Boogaloo by Ringo Starr. Well, Thanks nice. very much indeed for watching. And uh, we'll see you next week for another edition of Top, Top of the Pops. Back to Blackburn and Edmonds, reunited once more as Beardo Cunt, who has nicked that red nose off his mate and is proudly wearing it, sticks his face in between them. 
They remind us that next week's Top of the Pops is on at 6.45. Thank us for watching and throw us into the final single of the night. Back Off Boogaloo by Ringo Starr. Born in Liverpool in 1940, Ringo Starr was the drummer in The Beatles, a band who teamed up with Tony Sheridan for a cover of My Bonnet, which got to number 48 in June of 1963. After achieving success with Sentimental Journey, a covers LP which got to number 7 in April of 1970, he was encouraged to have a go at somewhat a bit more modern by his old bandmate George Harrison. And his debut single, It Don't Come Easy, got to number 4 for three weeks in May of 1971. This is the follow-up, again co-written with Harrison and originally offered to Cilla Black and heavily influenced by someone Ringo was working on a film with at the time, Mark Bolan. It entered the charts at number 18 in April and scaled its way upward, getting to number two for two weeks at the end of that month, getting wedged behind the Scottish bagpipe cunts. (laughs) And here it is being played while, you know, the audience has a bit of a rave up with lots of balloons and all sorts. So yeah, here we go. Here's your Beatles bit. (laughs) <laughs> and it is really weird having the Beatles in there because they, they seem so far away and distant yeah. from this angle. Yeah, so it's, it's a weird older person's choice to close the show with, really. Mm. But mm. three sort of decent solo singles from Ringo in yeah, three yeah. years. Mm. It don't come easy, this one, and Photograph. Mm. Um, and I've now talked about all three of them on chart music, like yeah. a Ringo star super fan. A ringologist, if you will. Yeah, you know when he said, no more fan mail, no more letters, peace and love. That that was because of me. Yeah. (laughs) But look, I mean, none of those singles are as good as the Beatles, but they're all as good as anything Ringo ever sang with the Beatles, possibly Mm. better. So he Mm. at least progressed, you know. Yeah. And it's interesting to see this right after T-Rex because it is post-T-Rex in every sense. And yeah, he was Mm. good mates with Bolan and all that. And it's... Genuinely quite weird to hear an older and more broadly well-known musician copying a bit of T-Rex and writing lyrics like, you think you're a groove standing there in your wallpaper shoes. Um, (laughs) I mean, the whole thing is like the words and music of T-Rex strained through the brain of a non-songwriter and then... And through the beard of Ringo. Yeah, and, and, (laughs) and slowed down almost to stationary with five crates of brandy you know and it could be a lot worse it's better than most of what john lennon was doing around this time oh yeah you know the man who put the fist in pacifist out of his face in (laughs) new york thinking that abby hoffman and david peel were the vanguard of the fucking revolution yeah um and although this song was secretly co-written with george harrison like Mm. almost all the songs ever credited to ringo were it's better than anything George Harrison was doing at the time or ever would again. Yeah. And, you know, it relied very heavily on the general likability and an unthreatening charm of Ringo Starr. But so does yeah. everything he ever did, with the exception yeah. of the drumming, which stands up by itself. So I say mm. let him have it, you know, in the good way. Yeah. yeah I, I mean, mean you, could, you could say that Ringo 
has won 1972 out of all the Beatles. I mean, Lennon's done some time in New York City and his only single of the year has been War Is Over, which is currently at number four. Paul McCartney's busy forming wings and getting his records banned. Mm. And Harrison has just shot his bolt, hasn't he? The thing is, Ringo was always really likeable. And perhaps at this time, you know, two years after the Beatles split, and with George, John and Paul being all serious, basically, um, Mm. it's the sheer sort of fun aspect of what he does that's appealing. And this record's dead good. Um, It really does sound like a track is is 10-4 good buddy Mark Bowler might have made, albeit missing uh, Mark's guitar. But the the drums and the feel of it, the role of it, it's fantastic. And crucially, of course... Uh, this gives us a chance to catch up with all the friends we've made watching this episode uh, in the audience. Mm. Balloons, we all hate them. I'm slightly annoyed that no blokes in this audience did either the pregnancy joke or the I have tits joke. Um, yeah. It should really happen with balloons, but, you know. Um, yeah. My uh, Diana Rigg alike former crush doesn't look quite as good but i was massively intrigued by the conversation between um uber mum who we've already established before (laughs) and tony uh tony and her have a very intriguing conversation i couldn't lip read it properly but i'd love to know what they were saying to each other no they're very familiar with each other to Mm. the point where for a second i wondered if this was actually mrs blackburn (laughs) senior but then she threw him a look which immediately made me think, ah, right, that's not his mum. Like, <laughs> God bless her, she thought he was dishy. Um, perhaps they shared a small sherry mm, afterwards. Yeah, maybe. Slipped yeah. off their slip-on shoes. Mm. It's possible. <laughs> so has everyone seen Get Back, the in-bed-with-Chris-Needham-that-thinks-it's-summer? Yes! <laughs> um, or did the thought of listening to seven hours of men talking to each other about old music make you want to throw up? <laughs> <laughs> I thought the best bit was where Ringo goes up to Mick Jagger's room and punched him in the face and said, I'm not even the best drummer in the Beatles! <laughs> or maybe I'm mixing up two apocryphal tales there, but still, print the legend. No, look, I thought it was fascinating, but of course I did. You know, mm. except for the fact that it's all got a fucking Instagram filter on it. Thanks for that, yeah. Peter Jackson. It's like the amount of processing they've done on the picture. It looks like it looks like they're a bunch of twenty-two-year-old rich girls in white bikinis doing handstands on a beach in <laughs> Dubai. I was expecting George to turn around with like an animal nose and muzzle on his face. <laughs> Although he actually looks worse than that when he shows up at Apple in a. Looking like a young Frank Muir, basically, Ooh. or at least one of the Muirettes. He's got triangular hair, moustache, and a dicky bow, like a country doctor. Mm. You know what I mean? He should have got together with uh, with the, the sorceress from Lieutenant Pigeon <laughs> and uh, told us what ozostomia means. Did you watch it all in one go, Taylor, or did you watch it in chunks? No, even I didn't watch it all in one go. Uh. <laughs> I watched each of the three parts in one go. Right. Because I was thinking yeah. of, yeah, setting myself the test of just getting through it all in one day. But I suspect by the end of it, I'll be antagonised more than enjoying it. So maybe I should divvy it up. Mm. But yeah, I can't wait to see it. Yeah. Even in three parts, you miss stuff. Because yeah. there's just so much babble. It just, you don't catch it. Mm. No, I'm I'm avoiding it. <laughs> no, yeah. I haven't finished Squid Game yet. So, you know. <laughs> it's the Beardles. It's the period <laughs> of their career that I'm least interested mm. in. Yeah. If it had been about the making of Revolver or Sgt. Pepper or even the White Album, I'd have been all over it. Mm. But no, 
Yeah, I must admit, at the end, I was thinking, I wish that they thought, wait a minute, I completely forgot we did a film like this about all our other albums as well. Mm. That would have been great. (laughs) I must admit that hearing people bang on about it on Facebook has given me some serious fucking (laughs) Star Wars vibes. God has stayed my hand on many an occasion Mm. from me just flicking on the all caps button and just saying, shut up about the fucking Beatles. No way. I will not. <laughs> I know, I know, I know. <laughs> I'll tell you what, though, what, it, what this film proves yet again about Ringo, other than the fact that he was permanently hung over, is mm. that he was a genuinely relaxing person to be around because mm. he had so few hang-ups, mm. right? as opposed to the other three. Like, the theme running through the whole thing is that despite their relationship heading for the rocks, John and Paul's incredible closeness... He's obvious in every scene from the way they always speak to each other naturally and unselfconsciously, mm. even if they're disagreeing, in a way that neither of them ever speaks to George, who's always on the outside. Even when he's on side with one of them in a disagreement with the other, nobody ever yeah. speaks to him in that way. And nobody's comfortable with him because they can tell he's got the hump and also because they can tell he's trying to assert himself more within the group. And Lennon and McCartney both know he's not as smart or talented as they are, even mm. though the songs you wrote in 1969 are as good as the songs they wrote in 1969, which is the only time that ever happened. But yeah. the awkwardness comes from that. It's the inability of George to break into a, a a stagnant but incredibly deep alliance between two people who love him, but they know that he's not an equal. And the point yeah. is, with Ringo, that's just not an issue. Mm. Like Ringo mm. knows that they're smarter and more talented than he is. They know that he, they're more smart and talented mm. than he is. But none of them care. It's not mm. relevant to their relationship at all. I mean, people always play that game of, oh, if the Beaklers had kept going throughout the 70s, what would their albums be? And, you know, this would be automatically be lumped on because it was a hit. But you just think, well, if George Harrison had turned up with this, is it, oh, here's a song for Ringo. The other two would go, oh, it's all right, mate, we've got it covered. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Beyond the period detail of it, I think what's probably going to break my heart the most when I do watch it is its avocation of an era in which you could just make music for a living. That, to me, is miraculous. Yeah, yeah, that they yeah. had nothing else to do, you know? The, the, I mean, you know... <laughs> That, to me, is amazing. In an era now in which virtually everyone making music has to have a day job and has to have all the rest, and you know you can't survive doing it, to be able to mm. just do that, and that being your life, that's miraculous. So I do, I do yeah, desperately want to see it. I'm penciling it in for Boxing Day, I think. Yeah. Uh, no, I'm going to stick with the On the Buses trilogy. <laughs> no, because I know I'll just be looking at it and just shouting at Paul McCartney, just saying, just fucking walk away and have a decent start to your solo career, mate. <laughs> I'll tell you what, right? I don't know. I was watching the rooftop concert bit at the end. And I don't know, is this just me being unfairly prejudiced against the police, many of whom are very committed public servants who do an extremely difficult job in extremely difficult circumstances? Or was anyone else surprised that when they finally got onto the roof while the Beatles were performing, they didn't just immediately run over to Billy Preston and bundle him to the floor? Is this your Fender Road, Sonny? Saved up for it, did you? That's a nice coat you're wearing. Uh, but I tell you what, all through the rooftop concert as well, I was thinking that's a lot of weight on that roof. 
Yeah. Are you absolutely sure about this? <laughs> How amazing <laughs> would it have been if halfway through they'd all just gone through the room? <laughs> yeah. Like, don't let me. Ah! <laughs> that would have been the greatest end to a career ever. Right, no pop history would just have ended there. Nobody could have topped it. Wish that happened when you two did it. <laughs> so the follow-up photograph got to number eight in November of 1973. Then your 16 got to number four for two non-consecutive weeks in March of 1974. And then Ringo went off to the pub with Harry Nielsen and Keith Moon for the rest of the 70s. <laughs> and that, my dears, closes the book on this astonishing episode of Top of the Pops. Nine months after this episode was broadcast, Johnny Stewart signed off as producer of Top of the Pops after 498 episodes, passing the reins over to Robin Nash, the producer of The Basil Brush Show and Cracker Jack. Stewart moved on to assorted music shows such as One More Time, Talk of the Town and In Concert and finished his career in 1980 as the director of Cheggers Plays Pop. Passing away in 2005 at the age of 87. Meanwhile, in June of 1973, Edmonds took over from Blackburn as the host of The Breakfast Show, with Tony being demoted to the Simon Bates slot. According to an interview with David Hamilton, quote, there is a tape of a handover between Noel and Tone that is so frosty you can see the icicles in the studio. <laughs> oh. Yeah, and not too long after that, Noel, for a jape, decided to play a single that Tony had done with Tessa Wyatt under an assumed name and let the cat out of the bag. And then, oh, yeah, the daggers were drawn after that. Oh, I bet. I bet. Apparently, Blackburn gave him a right bollocking. And that that was it. That was friendship over. What a lot. A changing of the guard. Mm. I think chart music owes Alistair Johnny Stewart a tip of the hat. For, for creating a fucking amazing episode here. Definitely. Um, and instigating some things in Top of the Pops that would be so important in its imperial fate. So what's on telly afterwards? Well, BBC One immediately piles into Sykes, where Eric buys a transport calf and ponces it up to the dismay of the clientele, which includes Fred Quilly, Bent Jocker. So he and Hattie Jakes make it all chatty again. Then, Cliff Mitchellmore shows you some more places to go on holiday that your mum and dad can't afford or won't go to because it's all foreign muck in Holiday 73. After the nine o'clock news, Robert Wagner and David McCallum try to nick off from Colditz and then Tom Jones asks us about in Gestad and has a snowball fight with Dusty Springfield in his own show. And they round off the night with a documentary film, The Life and Times of Miguel de Cervantes. Then it's the weather, then regional news in your area, and then they shut down at ten to midnight. Now you see, if this was really the golden age of the BBC, as we've been, as it's been sold to us, it would have been mm. uh, on BBC One at seven forty-five. The big film, Gunnar Björnstrand, stars in Ingmar Bergman's Winter Life. <laughs> A priest wrestles with his conscience and his doubts about the existence of God. With hilarious consequences. <laughs> That's the big film, Ingmar Bergman's Winter Light, 7.45 on BBC One. I mean, what is fucking Christmas without that film? 
BBC Two tells the story of the making of Lily Marlene in their European magazine show Europa. Then it's part 14 of the dramatisation of War and Peace. Only six more episodes to go. Still time to catch up. (laughs) Then Horizon compares the canals of Britain with their European counterparts (laughs) and concludes that once again, we're fucking cat shit. (laughs) After News on 2, it's the Canadian TV movie The Mad Trapper about a real-life manhunt conducted by the Mounties in the 30s and they sign off with Georgia Brown in concert, closing down at midnight. ITV eventually get round to Nearest and Dearest, where one of Eli Pledge's mates crashes round and tries to cop off with his sister, Hilda Baker, leading to everyone at the pickling factory to assume that she must be an incredible shag and all the menfolk start chasing her. Then it's this week, News at 10, Clive James banging on about his films of the year in cinema, Gardening today with Bob Price and Cyril Fletcher, and they finish off with the 1964 Dirk Bogard spy comedy, Hot Enough for June. So, boys, what are we talking about over our rally choppers in the street tomorrow? Definitely, Mark. Definitely Crazy Horses. Jackson 5 probably enslaved, but mainly Alice, I think. Mm. Or what a nice man that Rolf Harris is. realistically I think most kids would have been talking about the fact that some old man did a song about playing with his dick Uh, (laughs) this was actually one of the least interesting things that happened in this episode what we buying with our new record tokens on Saturday Mm. Um, well pretty much all of them Yeah. uh, let me rephrase that what are we not buying with our record tokens (laughs) on Saturday Uh, Nielsen and Donny yeah I'm just buying 1972. I'd have that for Christmas this year if I could. You know. But I think someone's already got me a never-ending global pandemic, so maybe next year. Yeah, all of it. Even the rubbish, I don't care. And what does this episode tell us about 1972? That, that it was fucking skill. Yes, and mint. Yeah, basically that it yeah. was just as we imagine it from programmes like Top of the Pops. Mm. The amazing pop records old world strangeness and sex offenders everywhere you look, you know. British Britain was like a a dry stool wrapped in gold leaf, wrapped in decomposing fish skin, wrapped in a sequin green jacket. It's not all great, but there's a lot of layers to explore. And on that note, we come to the end of this episode of Chart Music. All I need to do now is the usual promotional flange. www.chart-music.co.uk facebook.com slash chartmusicpodcast Reach out to us on Twitter at chartmusictotp money down the g-string patreon.com slash chart music thank you very much taylor parks goodbye god bless you neil kulkane oh it's been a pleasure my name's al needham you might have heard me on chart music i'm a star (laughs) (laughs) chart music hold up 
What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. association with the British Market Research Bureau and compiled by the Pop Craze Patreons, we present the Chart Music Top 40 of 2021. In at number 40, A.B. Robinson. Number 39, The Dishy Soccer Men. (laughs) Number 38, The Bad Wolves. Number 37, Chip Pan's People. <laughs> and this year's number 36, Backing Arse. In at number 35, Sex Vagrancy. <laughs> number 34, Spiteful Armoured Bollard. The number 33 Act of the Year, 15 Hicklers. Number 32, Quentin and the Axeman and number 31 Staircase of Cock (laughs) (laughs) Into the top 30 and at 30 Beards of Complacency Number 29 Panties (laughs) Number 28 Friar David. <laughs> In at number 27, Tyler, the XXX, privately educated. And at number 26, oven-ready women. 
the number 25 act of the year, Dave D, creepy twat and cunt. Number 24, Saxon Finder General. Number 23, James Gorway's flute to VD. <laughs> and at number 21, Skin Heady Heady. <laughs> Into the top 20 and at number 20, Tandoori Elephant. (laughs) Number 19, the Boogie Woogie Bugle Boys of Quality Street. Number 18, a tip for next year, the Popular Orange Vegetable. Number 17, the Continuity Westlife. (laughs) Number 16, the Cupertino Kid. (laughs) In at number 15, Shocks, Piss, Fire. (laughs) Number 14, Fucks Biz. This year's number 13, Jar Waddy Wadder. Mm -hmm. Number 12, Romocop. And at number 11, the sound of the summer of 2021, Nolan Tentacle Porn. (laughs) It's time for the Chart Music Top 10. And at number 10, Concerned Mother of Exeter. (laughs) He's made it all the way to number 9 this year. Mario Cunt. <laughs> In at number eight, CFAX Data Blast. Mm. Number seven, Taylor Parks' 20 Romantic Moments. Mm. And at number six, Jeff Sex. <laughs> Into the top five and at five, Jesus Price. Ooh. Number four, here comes Jism. Oh, yes. Number three, Bomber Dog. Uh-huh. Number two, Rock Expert David Stubbs. Which means number one in your heart, number one in your charts. It could only be the bent cunts who aren't fucking real. That was the Chart Music Top 40 of 2021. My name's Al Needham, and on behalf of everyone at Chart Music, I'd just like to say, fuck off, 2021. You were shit, and we are skill. (laughs) 